We can go ahead and uh, begin our time. Thanks for joining us again as we continue our series on marriage and the family. I'll uh, pray to begin our time this week. We're dealing with marriage in the Bible. So I'll, I'll pray for the Lord's blessing and then kind of introduce more what we're doing this morning. Does anyone have trouble getting here marathon related? It's that, it's that week of the year. It's the California International Marathon. Anybody? I think most people are north of Highway 50, probably no issues. Um, but anyway, we might have some issues in the corporate worship with people coming in late. That's why, probably, we can assume. Everyone got up on time. It was a marathon. Um, let's pray and, and, and go from there. God, thank you for gathering us as your church. We praise you for the work you've done in Christ to redeem a people that were not your people, but you have uh, made yours. And people who had not received mercy, who had wandered far from you into sin, but you have made us a people uh, who have received your mercy and forever have an eternal hope and eternal inheritance in Christ and now are, are being kept by your grace, being prepared for glory, being sanctified together as a people. It's such a joy to come together as one under Christ because not only is he our head individually, but he's the head of the body. And so we pray that we would be a people devoted to, to him together today, that we would... Um, gladly submit to his authority, that we would revel in the riches that he's bought for us in his work on the cross and in his resurrection, and in all he continues to be for us as our king and high priest. We pray that you'd grant us wisdom as we look to your word regarding marriage, that you would give me clarity and faithfulness of speech, give us all alertness and discernment of hearing, and whether we're married or not, this is important for us. We pray that we would understand your will with regard to marriage and what it was supposed to be, what it is supposed to be, what it, how it's been distorted, and how it ties into your, your Christ-centered plan for all things. We pray to be glorified in our midst through what we see today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began our series and we kind of be, uh, began by trying to get ready for what we we're going to cover by serving. In some ways, last week was the easiest one because it was all just look at what's so messed up about marriage and family, serving the wreckage with regard to society and the church and our own lives, and really just establishing the point that these things are important and these things are areas of a lot of distortion and sin. And so we gave a high-level overview of marriage and family as it kind of progresses through the biblical storyline, the four major phases of that story being creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation as kind of the final outcome of Christ's redeeming work. And we saw that the husband and wife and child-parent relationships touch on some of the deepest issues that the Bible has to deal with. Issues like what does it mean to be a human being created by God and what is God doing in history? What's his plan in Christ uh, to redeem the ruins that sin has brought about? Um, so we gave a very high-level overview of that last week. And this week we're going to focus on marriage and just survey through the Bible and learn what does the Bible have to say about marriage. We're going to, this is going to be groundbreaking methodology here. We're going to start with the Old Testament, and then we're going to go to the New Testament in that, in that order. And... Um, as we said last week, this step of saying, kind of asking on the Bible's own terms, what is the Bible saying about marriage is a really important step because as we established last week, we don't just want to sprinkle in this series practical advice superficially onto whatever 
foundational assumptions we might be bringing in regarding marriage and family. We already said there's a lot of, of um, misunderstanding and error and satanic deception floating about in our culture that we're all susceptible to. And so we need to really kind of go to the foundations and say, what does God say marriage is? What does God say marriage is supposed to be? And go from there. And of course, the practical matters will flow much more easily and naturally from that once we kind of get what's God doing with this whole thing of marriage. The advice stuff, the practical how to do it is important, but it's going to make a lot more sense in the context of these foundations. Um, so that's, that's a strategy uh, for going forward in the course. Does that make sense? Any questions or, or thoughts about that so far? I haven't said anything too controversial, so. <laughs> um, so let's start with marriage in the Old Testament, and we're going to start in seeing how it's rooted in creation. Some of the things we talk about, we, we anticipated last week in our very high-level survey, but we'll be a little more detailed. We're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2. One of the big Old Testament points about marriage is the way it's instituted at creation. It's really helpful to look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, because as I pointed out last week, this is all before the fall. So if you want to know, kind of separate out the issues of what is God meaning marriage to be, and then how has it gotten messed up? It's really prime real estate to look at before the fall, that's Genesis 1 and 2, and sort of say, what, was it, what is it supposed to be? And then we have to layer in what went wrong. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at its root in creation. Then the next item we're going to look at is, is how it's been distorted in the fall. And then we'll see how kind of the rest of the Old Testament sort of teases out what's kind of this, what's in seed form, really, in, in these first three chapters of Genesis. So how is marriage rooted in creation? Um, <clears throat> Well, we, we, we did this last week, but we'll do it again, uh, looking at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Um, actually, let's just read 27 and 28. Would someone be willing to read Genesis 1, 27 and 28? And then someone else be ready soon for a longer chunk, Genesis 2, 15 through 25. So could, could we have a hand up for Paul, you're ready for that, the 2, 15 to 25? Someone be willing to read 1, 26 and, or 27, 28? I see Matt Wolf. We'll get you something later. Great, thanks. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Genesis one twenty seven. Uh, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you. So the authors of the book, by the way, that we're kind of basing this course on, um, God, Marriage, and Family, they say, um, quote, marriage is rooted in God's act of making humanity in his image as male and female. Um, uh, that, end quote. That's the end of their quote. We talked about this a little bit last week, that first of all, what you see is this genderedness of what it means to be a human being. There is a male, maleness and femaleness is, is not incidental to, to human nature. We together image God. It's interesting um, how this text does a lot. There's a lot going on. The text, on the one hand, it distinguishes male and female very fundamentally in what it means to be a human being, and then assigns male and female together the joint task of representing God as his rulers over the earth. So there's a distinctness, but then there's this kind of shared mission, this shared purpose that they together as male and female are the image of God to rule over creation for God. 
So that's very early, very kind of seed form, but, it, but that's significant already. And then, Paul, would you read? Um, so chapter 2, chapter 1 is, is kind of high-level creation, uh, six days. Chapter 2 zooms in on creation of man in the garden. And um, what I would say is chapter 1 focuses more on man and woman's equality in our, our, our purpose before God. Chapter 2 is going to go more into the details about our distinctions of what maleness and femaleness means, especially with regard to marriage. So um, in Chapter 2, we're dealing with, with kind of the garden level of cre- the creation um, and Adam and Eve in particular. So, Paul, would you read this? Verse 15 and 25. Uh, Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Thank you. A longer passage, but it's very relevant to marriage, very foundational. So what are some indications in this passage that kind of... um, point to the, the man having a certain sense of priority or, or more prominence in this text, the man as opposed to the woman. Paul? So there's a sense in which she's derived from him. Yeah, he, she's made out of his rib, miraculously. Yeah, Randy, do you have, do you have a thought too? Um, yeah, excuse me, before he gave the woman to man, he gave him work to mm-hmm. attend the garden. So he first gave the man a job to work and keep the garden. And then, so then in view of that calling, what's, the, what's, the, what's going on with the woman coming about? So you're right. So he gives the man a job, and then the woman comes about. Why? Yeah, Greg. Well, he expressly says that she's being made to be a helper mm-hmm. who's suitable for him. Yeah, a fit helper, a suitable helper in view of his calling that God gave him. He goes, this guy needs a fit helper. Matt Boyd, were you going to say something same or something else? I guess similarly, or implicitly, mm-hmm. because she comes after God's told Adam all this job and the responsibilities, mm-hmm. implicitly that's upon Adam to reveal that information to her, to share the load with her, tell her what he needs help with. Yeah, so he was the one to whom God directly charged with, what's your job to do? To work and keep this garden. Um, and the, the covenantal 
commandment and prohibitions about the tree. Um, where, where was that? Verse, verses 16 and 17. To not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, uh, but they can eat from all the other trees. He told Adam that. He said, here's what you do. Here's the boundaries not to cross. And then brings about woman. And you're right, Matt. There's an implicit, well, his responsibility was to bring her on board with what God had said and, and, and that she was there to be a support to him in that. There's also the function of naming. Do you notice how um, he, God brings all the animals to Adam to name, which is, a, which is a, an act of authority. And then when the woman, when he brings the rib out and, and makes the rib into a woman, he brings, he kind of presents her to the man. And the man does what in verse 23? He names her. He names her. This is woman. She's taken from my flesh. Now, if, if all we had was this, we might think, oh, maybe she's like one of the animals. She's like a, a higher version of all the other animals. That's where chapter 1 is really helpful. We just read in 127, 28, which, which draws the really hard distinction, though, the big bright line is between man, male and female, in the image of God, and everything else. That male and female humans in the image of God are to rule for God over all the animals. So it's not like Eve is to be thought of as like another one of the animals by any means. She's very special. She's taken from the man. So there's that equality, but there's also a sense of a clear uh, authority. There's an authority relationship where he names her, and she is a suitable helper. Um, and zooming in a little bit or, uh, on that concept of her being a suitable helper, um, you know, what, what, what evidence do we have so far about what that means? And we've kind of touched on it. I think Matt kind of, uh, various people have said, in view of what we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, what does suitable helper seem to entail? Yeah. A mate. What? A mate. A mate. You mean it? Uh, yeah. So exactly. Like don't, don't, uh, don't rush past the just the very fact of he tells them in in chapter one verse twenty have babies fill the earth, and so the man, at the risk of stating the obvious, can't do that alone. Um, it <laughs> it's not good that he be alone in view of his calling as God's image in the world. He cannot fill the world with image bearers of God alone. So there's a very Natural and good, but there's a, there's a complementarity where God creates man and woman who together can do that. So that's very significant. She's his fit helper in that together they can uh, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, that's really important. What else? Yeah, Paul. I got a question on uh, the end of 23, or on 23, where he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then on for 24, he says, for this reason, a man shall live, shall leave his father and mother. I don't, what's the connection between 23 and the start of 24? Yeah, that's really interesting. 24. 24 is interesting in the context because, wait a minute, he didn't leave a father and mother. Like Moses is using language. Moses is, is um, and what he's doing in verse 24 is, He's kind, of, he's kind of drawing a line around this timeless institution of sort of saying, this is sort of a principle we derive from the story. The story of how this came about, the, the first woman came about to be a fit helper, and he named her, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And Moses kind of hits time out on the narrative and sort of like, okay, y'all. And then he's writing to Israel, probably on the plains of Moab, ready to enter the land, to understand where they came from as human beings and as God's people, to say, this is... Basically, it's amazing how 
compact and dense. Verse 24 is with regard to the Bible's teaching on marriage. It's almost everything the Bible has to say about marriage almost lies in seed form in verse 24. So he's like, time out. This is why, this is why we do this. This is why man leaves his fa- father and mother. They join together. They become one flesh. This is sort of Moses showing us, God showing us through Moses, that, that what happened in the garden is kind of that sets the normative pattern for what every marriage is. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't necessarily know to take it that way. Like, we would just say, okay, this happened to the first couple. What does that mean for us? He's saying sort of, this is why all marriage takes its shape. Yeah. Tim Keller talks about that, how marriage is a new creation. You're creating a new culture. Mm-hmm. So in the garden, they were the first, they were the only, they were something different than everything else. And so when a man and a woman get married, they're supposed to leave the culture of their family culture, mm-hmm. of their social context, whatever was the way we did things mm. when I was growing up, mm-hmm. that I'm leaving that behind and I'm making something new with you. And mm. together we have to come to God and figure out what are we <coughs> as, a, as a new and different thing. Yeah, so that's an interesting observation and good that there's, there's newness in, we could say every, every marriage is a new family. And there's some, there's, it's interesting that, again, in the context, they didn't leave parents. But there is this sort of, like, what the emphasize is, in a context where you do come from parents, there's that newness still of this, this brand new couple of forming a new family under God, which is why a biblical, kind of biblical worldview does really prioritize what's called the nuclear family, the marriage and parent-child relationships. Uh, extended family is still valuable and is recognized in scripture, but there's a clear priority of this is a really new thing that's really distinct. So the marriage relationship is far and away the most important human relationship. Um, there's, you don't see this kind of one flesh language, just leaving, or leaving and cleaving is kind of the summary. This leaving behind others, not in an absolute sense, but in, in a relative sense to make this brand new one flesh thing, like this really deep uh, level of unity and intimacy. Um, so, so yeah, she's a fit helper with regard to procreation, which is important, and we shouldn't blush about saying that's a really important part of marriage. That's based on verse chapter one, verse twenty-eight. Um, and she's his companion with regard to the work he's given, God has given Adam to do in working and keeping the garden. And I think verse twenty-three and and twenty-four, there's sort of this relational companionship intimacy thing like Adam at first thing he does when he sees a woman is write a poem or a song whatever this is which is fitting and then verse 24 is all about an intimacy of relationship so it's not just functional it's not like well I can't have kids without a woman or I can't you know I can't uh, take care of this whole garden without another set of hands it's it's not that functional it's also very it's companion it's warm it's companionship it's relationship we're going to look in a moment at song of songs and how that kind of helps us to see that was always supposed to be part of marriage is a, a warmth of relationship. Um, so yeah, and, and, and we see all this kind of echoing through the rest of the biblical narrative. The idea, for instance, that bearing children is an important part of marriage. Um, in Genesis, throughout the narrative, this idea that a, a, a wife is, part of what a wife is for with regard to her husband is to bear children for him. Um, and together they are bearing children. This comes up so many times throughout the patriarchal narratives. Uh, it's, a, it's a major plot point in Abraham's life, in Isaac's life, and so on, uh, is having children. Um, we also see that 
Uh, where am I here? Yeah, it's, it's you know, with regard to that, what we're going to see, especially as we look at chapter 3, to borrow a little bit out of chapter 3, this idea that um, when God is cursing them, and we're going to get there in a moment, what he does in verse 16 is he curses the woman with regard to childbearing, and he curses the man with regard to kind of material provision. And what, what that assumes, it doesn't create, but assumes is the idea that there's this sort of natural division of primary spheres of, of, of family and kind of childbearing in the home, the domestic sphere being primarily the, the domain of the woman and the, the kind of out there providing and the, the kind of work interfacing with the world being the man's provision. So, again, it's this model of the guy was given work to do in the world and then the woman comes along as God's, God's way of helping him do that work, um, being, being his, his support there. Um, but it's not a, it's not, we shouldn't be rigid about a division of labor. So you, you see men in the Bible preparing meals. <laughs> you see, um, and we're going to look briefly at Proverbs 31, and the woman does stuff like make real estate deals. So it's not wrong for a woman to be enterprising and um, earning income and things like that. There's wisdom to negotiate the sort of particularities. But there is a sort of very broad level primary kind of domestic versus kind of out provision in the world spheres to women and men uh, respectively um, yeah so as I said verse 24 is really the seedbed for so much of what the Bible has to say about marriage and a lot of the Bible's teaching on marriage is kind of teasing out verse 24 in various ways and a lot of the sin and distortion we see in the Bible is basically runs afoul of if you say how do we know this was wrong is basically verse 24 it like runs afoul somewhere or another of Genesis 2:24. we'll see that in a moment as we look at some of the distortions that have happened um, but the, the, what's it, what, uh, we want to come out of chapters 1 and 2 with this idea that there's a co-equality between men and women that's very important that they are the image of God together neither one is more in the image of God than the other she's taken from him there's an equality of nature there she's derived from him but she's of the same stuff as him but there's also a differentiation in function and role there's the man is first, the woman is after. That, so that doesn't mean he's more important in dignity or he's, more, he's, he's kind of more, his being is, is of a higher order than hers. It's simply under God, there is an order of, of function. Um, and, and, and another, some more kind of goods to draw out of verse 24. Do you notice that what's implied here is monogamy? that a man leaves his father and holds fast to his wife. They're all singular. It happens one man and one woman. Um, it's also implied that this, the norm here is heterosexual. It is a man and a woman. Uh, there's, no other, there's no other alternative than a man and a woman. And that also the idea of a lifetime union is implied in this becoming one flesh. They become this new thing that is it's mysterious, and it's kind of once it gets knotted together, it's not... It's not easily pulled apart. And that's the logic Jesus himself will use when they ask him, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife under any circumstances in Matthew 19? And he quotes, do you remember what verse he quotes? He quotes, actually, I think Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. And says, God has made them one flesh. They're one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's not our fanciful imagination that says that uh, 
the lifetime union is implied very clearly there in that one flesh. That's how Jesus reads it. Um, another just very important observation to make is that marriage is God's thing. It's not ours. Marriage is, uh, is not something that human beings... And there's a dominant view, kind of secular view of marriage that people assume, which is just sort of like evolutionarily humans and, you know, on the plains of wherever we were hunting and gathering. We just came up with these sort of social conventions that seem to work, pragmatically work well for survival. And we said, hey, you know, if a man and woman get together and just stick together and make babies, it's like really stable. That's what they think marriage came from. It's just sort of like, it sort of worked and we all got used to it. And so we started making it more formal. And in that logic, it becomes a lot easier for people to start tinkering with what marriage is, because all it is is just the way we've always done it. There's nothing more to it than that. So why, shouldn't, why couldn't we change it according to different um, opinions, different um, convictions regarding the world? But instead, it's this thing God set up. God gave the woman to man. God joined them together. And so... Um, uh, marriage is is not ours to define. It's not ours to change. It, it's prior to other human institutions like government. So it's uh, it's more fundamental than government, for instance, or even church. So that it it's not any of those later institutions' job. They didn't make marriage. It's not their job to define what marriage is supposed to be. Does that make sense? It's their job to honor what marriage is. It's something inherited that governments and church and so on are to regard them for what they really are. Matt, I see your hand back there. On that note, um, what actually makes them one flesh? Is it the vows that we take at the, uh, you know, at the wedding ceremony, or is it the physical union? What makes them one flesh? Is it, uh, it's God. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't mean to like, yeah, I don't mean but, to but like Jesus. I mean, a husband and a wife, I mean, I, I sit next to other yeah. women here. I'm not bound to them yeah. the same way I am to my wife. What's interesting is the Bible, yeah, it's just super interesting. The Bible does not really say anything about the, the ceremony, the initiation of how, how we make this happen. I think there's an understood maybe, there's flexibility on what that looks like, but there's this sort of what I'd call a natural law or natural theology of we all know that there's this pairing together of man and woman. We all know that God recognizes a special thing, and people, and it's true, people, they all across cultures, there's some way of going like, this is a, a husband and wife. There's some way of kind of everyone recognizing that this is, an, this is a husband and wife. I think the physical, the physical aspect is part of it, but I wouldn't just boil it down to that and say it's all it is is a sexual union. Because by that logic, every person that you have relations with is suddenly your wife or your husband. You know, it, it would, that's not biblical either. So it's something beyond just the physical union, but the, the physical union is, seems to be a part of the equation. It's mysterious. It's something God does. We have a part in it, but what's, it, what's amazing is to think about the mystery of when a man and woman stand before you know, witnesses or whatever, and they take their vows and everything, something changed that's beyond just their own decision. It's not just like we just decided to be a different status. It's like God made us a different status, and it's sort of like written in heaven now. It's just really, it's just kind of, my, when I remember getting married, it was like mind-blowing to me. But anyway, uh, Gary, and then, I, Terry, did you have a hand up too? Okay, go, we'll go to Gary. God's given civil authority mm-hmm. plays into that as well. 
because we do have a, a civil yeah uh, yeah uh, avenue for what a marriage is. right so so yes I don't want to by saying it's prior to civil authority I yeah I don't want to say civil authority has nothing to do with it civil authority's job is to recognize and protect it and it does and so there are, it is appropriate that we go down to the you know go down to the county and, and get a marriage li license or whatever. But what's inappropriate is for the government to interfere with what God designed marriage to be or to try to redefine it. Civil authority, too, came after the fall. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. After the fall, for sure. So, um, yeah, and then, Terry, did you have a hand up? Yeah. Um, like, I thought of Paul in, the, in Ephesians 5 where he, he refers to Genesis. Mm -hmm. He refers to this passage and he, he mentions that this mystery is profound. Mm -hmm. but he, clearly explicitly says that I'm, I'm saying that this refers to Christ and yeah. his church and the bride. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know for our purposes, does that help? Does that help? Too much. Well, it's a spiritual union, yeah. which we just have to have a category kind of metaphysically for things that are real and immaterial. The Bible assumes that. What? Mystery. There's mystery. It's, it's spiritual and real, but not material. And that is something that applies to marriage. God does something that's real but isn't tangible in terms of there's not like this substance of a marriage bond, but it is no less real. Just like the, the church's church union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's a spiritual, real union that is not material. Um, moving on, uh, we just we need, to, we need to kind of keep moving into how marriage has fallen in the garden in Genesis 3. So that's pre-fall norm of equality but distinction in fulfilling God's mandate for creation for, for man's relationship to creation didn't last long and in Genesis we have the fall and I mentioned this last week that um, the fall is very closely how it happened is very closely related to marriage roles um, so I'll read chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 um, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Over the next few verses, God tracks them down and confronts them. They're ashamed. They hide from God. He tracks them down in the garden, and he starts doling out curses to all the parties involved because of what they've done. Verse 14, he curses the serpent. Verse 15, he, promise, he famously promises to the serpent, basically promises the Messiah, promises one to crush the seed of the serpent. And then in verse uh, 16, to, 16, he deals with the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then in 17 and 19, he curses the man. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten, of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's interesting, others have pointed out how what happens in the fall is, is like an exact reversal of the order God had ordained. So you have an animal, Satan taking the form of an animal, appealing to the woman who makes a decision and influences the man to overthrow God's reign. So you have everything's reversed. It should be God over man and woman, and between man and woman, the, the, the man has headship and authority, and together they rule over the creatures. Everything got turned upside down. That's, that's Satan's MO, turning upside down God's good order of, of his creation. Um, so it's no accident exactly how that happened. The snake appeals to a woman, woman influences man, and they all together um, sort of unseat God as, as the authority over them. Um, or seek to. I mean, they don't ultimately, but they, they rebel against God. Um, and Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, we said this last week, Paul points out, like, this is what mischief has been caused when we forgot, we, uh, we violated the order between man and woman. He's, not, he, he's warning churches about uh, how, to, uh, how to recognize men and women's roles with regard to authority. And he doesn't say, he's not saying women are gullible so they can't teach. He's saying, Look how the wheels fell off of the entire planet and human race when we mixed up the order. We didn't recognize the distinction between man and woman, that God, the good distinction that God had made. So he's warning the Ephesian church there in, in 1 Timothy 2, don't, don't do that again. Don't repeat that same error that they repeated in the garden. Um, you'll notice that though the sin began with a woman, the man is consistently held responsible. The Bible never, after this story, the Bible never blames Eve. The Bible always blames Adam. Um, in verse, uh, verse 9, it's the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? I got We need to have a conversation, Adam. That's significant. And in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, part of Adam's sin was, and that we shouldn't, don't take that as like, see husbands, never listen to anything your wife has to say. This first Peter says, you know, live with understanding with your wife. Of course, she's, she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. doesn't mean that. But listen to is very thick here. It means you obeyed her rebellious impulses. That's what it means here. So, Adam, you abdicated your responsibility. It's on you first because that's what it means to, be, to have authority. Later on in Romans 5, when Paul's comparing Christ, he doesn't compare Christ and Eve. He compares Christ and Adam. Adam was a representative of all mankind in his decision to disobey God, Romans 5, 12 to 14. Um, and I, I pointed out earlier, what, when he curses man and woman, he curses each one's vocational sphere. The woman's primary sphere is domestic, so he curses childbearing. Um, and all, and the, the man um, primarily provision, so he says it's going to be hard to do that. It's going to be hard to raise feet. Paul, did you have a... Yeah, I had a question about the woman's curse in uh, 16. Yeah. He said, okay, he said to the woman, he said, I will bring and multiply your pain in childbirth. In your pain, in pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your yeah. husband. That word desire, that seems like a positive. If that's it does. A, if that's a negative, because I heard uh, MacArthur preach like 10 minutes on that one word, <laughs> desire. Yeah, yeah. Is there something? Yeah, it sounds there? positive, which is really, actually, you're anticipating the next point I want to make, which is it's not positive. Um, the idea, I think, is to sort of desire with regard to um, wanting to basically usurp, wanting to conquer. 
And the way that, that we see that really clearly um, is in 4.7. He says the same thing to Cain when Cain is tempted to sin. He's, he's discontent in his heart because God hasn't accepted the sacrifice. And God's warning him. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This idea of it wants to take over, and you have to subdue it. Don't let sin do that. And what, what God, what you see that desire and rule are together in verse 16. So the idea is the woman now, because of the curse, the woman will have an impulse to want to usurp, and the man will dominate. That's a product of the fall. Not ordered authority between man and woman. That was very clear in chapter 2. But desire to, to desire with regard to usurpation and domination. That's the distortion. That's the product of the curse. That's a really good question. And that's one of the main things we need to see coming out of the curse here is not only was the curse occasioned by general confusion, but it, it begat all manner of distortion um, and it's so important to recognize the complementary roles are not a result of the curse, but the messed up nature of how it looks. And part of, part of what's so hard with us is it's so hard to look sometimes, especially based on our experience, if we haven't maybe been in healthy Christian environments, especially. It's so hard to look at like the, order, the ordered nature of manhood and womanhood and not look at through the lens of all the messed up distortions that maybe we've experienced or seen. And we think that that's what God, that's what the Bible is calling for. Basically the domination and the conflict, like the kind of the battle of the sexes, right? Where there's sort of like, there's this, this friction and conflict between man and woman. And, and it's easy to think, oh, if we're talking headship and submission, that's naturally what has, that's what it will be. It will be conflict. It will be uh, this, this war for power. But it's really important to say that that came in the fall. That's the messed up part of it. That's not God's design. Um, clear so far so any questions or thoughts about that either the first part foundations one and two or the fall uh, three. Yeah, top of that. And then, uh, just kind of hearing it like putting it in proper perspective as far as um, kind of like the, the psyche of Eve you know and um, also just like the idea that um, God had an order mm-hmm. uh, that was already divinely intended like, to be a certain type of way and again it's not necessarily about like pitting you know a man against a woman mm-hmm. more so understanding this natural order of things and if you don't really respect that then that's why things you know kind of go haywire sometimes mm-hmm. um, would you say that like um feel like you know like in the secular world or just in general like you know we see a lot of these same type of things like when, when it comes to relationship problems and mm-hmm. stuff like that like power dynamics yeah and gender roles and things of that nature would you say that a lot of that stuff has a root in um you know adam and eve and yeah. that whole thing you know, like you know, obviously people that are secular are not really trying to really Christian lifestyle, but they, you know, they're, they're still trying to have a regular relationship. Yeah. I think that, like, you know, we don't associate that because they're not, you know, necessarily trying to live a Christian life. It's like, when you really look at the, you know, the details of it, like, that, that is the kind of, you know, of not understanding, like, the order. Yeah, if I think, I think, if I understand you, I think, yes, that you're saying that we look out over all these different ways, these manifestations of sort of conflict and power with regard to marriage relationships. And basically, those are all attributable to this problem, that in the curse, that what was supposed to be a harmonious order turned into a, an order of conflict and, and friction. And basically, power and authority um, 
unregulated by basically in a sort of sinful, chaotic, unregulated state is is just messy. And and this isn't just in marriage in general. This is like civil authority. Every every place where authority exists, if it's fallen and it's not redeemed, it's really ugly. Um, because that's what sin does. It takes God's good things and messes them up, twists them up. And that's what that's what's happened with regard to authority and and headship and submission in the in the marriage relationship all over around the world. Randy, do you have something to say? Just briefly, yeah. That word submission is what Christ displayed when he came to earth. But to get to my point, mm-hmm. verse 9, um, that I've always pondered that. Why could an omnipotent God ask Adam, where are you? Yeah. He knows. It's not because he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. Combine that with all these events yeah. that were ordained to happen, all the cursing, all mm-hmm. whatever was ordained to happen, the only thing that I could come up with was possibly God giving Adam an opportunity to confess. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, when God asks someone a question, it's to teach that person. It's, it's to do something in that person. It's not, God doesn't learn anything. He doesn't learn discursively. Like, you're, you're not informing God anything. He knows he's on, om, omnif, omniscient. So somehow or another, he's trying to do something in his hearers to ask that question. I don't know what all he's... You know, it might be sort of the rhetorical question of why are you kind of like, why are you hiding? What has happened? You know, it's like getting them to reckon with, uh-oh, you know, I, I created this big problem where I'm ashamed to be seen by God and so on. Um, but, yeah, Christina, and then we'll move on to the next our next item. And I may be, like, jumping way ahead, and you might just tell me if you want to. But um, I was just having a conversation the other day, lunch with a really sweet sister in Christ who um, is not a part of this local body, but mm-hmm. is part of the body of Christ. And um, and I was, you know, I was heartbroken with her. She's going through a divorce. Yeah. Um, and and um, but I was, we were pondering this, all these things yeah. because, you know, it's like marriage is a good thing for, it gets a yeah. gift from God and that no man put it asunder. And yet, like, you know, the whole Jesus to disciples you know, Moses granted for you to have a certificate mm-hmm. of divorce because your hardness of heart. Yeah. And I was just sharing with her, like, it's not her hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and um, that has caused this divorce. Yeah. And, um, and I think so often with the idea of submission and mm-hmm. the idea of the order of things mm-hmm. within it, um, women, you know, it's like, it, and I say this knowing that I'm super humbled by having a beautiful marriage that, mm-hmm. you know, God has shown me Christ-likeness through. But, like, so often the idea of submission and and domination, mm-hmm. you know, it, like creates this world of like, even within the appearance, appearance of having a good marriage without the actuality yeah. of having a good marriage, just like women submitting to really horrific perversions yeah. of of what Christ intended in marriage, right. and it being their responsibility to then thus hold together yeah. what God has joined together in that process, yeah. and it's really like. The hardness of heart that yeah. we used to repent from the, the men in, in yeah. these scenarios. Not saying that it's always that. Oh, yeah. Um, right. That allowed for almost a gracious, merciful divorce hmm. to free these women if, from in certain circumstances. Yeah. So you're right. And we, because we're kind of fighting the cultural stream of what we can call egalitarianism, which, which denies these roles, we might have a tendency to beat the drum louder of. Resisting the hard the hardness that takes the form of refusing a wife's submission, but we need we would be evil to not also rebuke the hardness of man's domination. Which as I said last week, a lot of where feminism was coming from historically is 
a lot of unchecked domination, sinful, wicked domination by men over women. And so we should be as quick to condemn that as we are to condemn every, every, every way that this norm is violated is, is wicked. And it is true that you know, we need to be aware of, even in spaces like ours that we're upholding this, this headship and submission, that we're, we're not, we need to be careful that that doesn't look like domination. Maybe certain, you know, as we just live life with one another in the body and we're forming relationships, just uh, we don't want to, we, there's, if there's families where that looks like domination, we're not like, oh, that's, that's good. That's what this is supposed to be. That's part of why we're doing this is so we can recognize the difference. Egalitarianism is not the only problem out there by any means. Um, so yeah, this is a long way of saying yes. yes. Uh, moving on uh, to, I'm going to be real quick with the rest of the Old Testament and just say there's a few different ways that this norm that really stems out of Genesis 1 and 2, though it, 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 um, it basically as time goes on you see all these distortions arise in the story and you go, wow, there's a lot of ways to screw this up. And because of Genesis 3, all these ways get explored narratively, and some of them appear in the terms of being prohibited in the law. So we'll just go through quickly. One of them is polygamy, and you have Bible references in your handout, so I'll leave you to look those up. Uh, some of them are showing how it happens, and some are showing how God condemns it. Polygamy is, you know, having more than one wife, a husband having one, more than one wife. I don't think you ever see in the Bible the opposite, a wife having more than one husband. You see husbands with multiple wives, concubines, um, and some people point to this and say, oh, look, the Bible's so messed up on marriage, it, it, it promotes polygamy. Well, the Bible never promotes polygamy. Its narratives include people doing that. But, again, it's right there in cha- chapter 2, verse 24, that it's monogamy. It's one man, one woman. It was, it was never supposed to be polygamous. Um, a lot of times it's kings. It's people in more higher elite positions that do it, probably to conform with the norms of other nations. The kings would especially be those who would like David and Solomon. Otherwise, uh, you know, otherwise, good character. David's a great Bible you know, character, but he still does it. The Bible doesn't endorse or promote it by any means. Um, another distortion is divorce. Um, again, the durability of marriage is implied in verse 24, that they become one flesh. And Jesus teases this right out in Matthew 19.6. He says, they're one flesh. What God is doing together, let not man separate. Now, because of sin, there are... Jesus does say a little bit more about certain situations where it is permissible, but basically that was never what God intended for marriage to be like, to be able to be, to be uh, torn, torn apart. Um, adultery, again, one flesh implies an exclusive and faithful union. So, um, so um, sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage is, is Im- implicitly precluded there in um, Genesis 2. And it's explicitly precluded in the law, the seventh commandment, things like that. But again, that becomes uh, sadly a major element in the, in the Bible's story. And God uses it as a metaphor for Israel's spiritual rebellion against him, their, their unfaithfulness to him. Um, homosexuality is another one. Um, you know, there's a lot of, in the conversation about homosexuality, there's a lot of, of conversation about a couple of verses in Leviticus, like Leviticus 20, verse 13. Um, and people say, well, that's the law. That's the Old Testament law. We don't obey all that. I mean, we, don't, we're, we mix fabrics, don't we? We eat shellfish, don't we? Um, how could you quote Leviticus 20, verse 13 on this issue? And there's even, I'm seeing arguments about, oh, we've been mistranslating the word that's translated homosexuality in some of the New Testament texts. And 
This is all just made up about, you know, 70 years ago by Bible translators. Well, that's all really silly, superficial arguments, isn't it? Because the norm about marriage and sexuality, instead of just asking, where's the verse that says we can't do this? That's a bad way to (laughs) do ethics biblically. Where's the verse that says I can't do this? The better question to ask is, what is what what does the Bible more comprehensively teach about this thing? And what the Bible comprehensively teaches is that sexual union belongs in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman per Genesis 2.24. And that's it. That prohibits adultery, divorce, homosexuality, everything outside of those bounds. What Greg preached a while back in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, the, the little... Um, image that sort of captures all of that is the marriage bed. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. That's just a really good little phrase that the author of Hebrews uses for intimacy in its marital bounds as God intended. Everything outside of that in all its forms is prohibited and is, is evil in sight of God. So we don't have to, I mean there's things, there's answers about like Leviticus 20 and all that but uh, in some ways those are kind of a red herring to fight over how a word gets translated here and there, but just go, well, what does God say sex and marriage are supposed to look like? It's very clear. Um, sterility or, or infertility. Now, this is not a sin. All these other things are sin. Infertility is a distortion from God's design that's not a sin, but it is a result of the fall. Sadly, and we know the norm is, be fruitful and multiply. As you look through the Bible story, you see there's a lot of couples that struggle with fertility. That's a major plot point throughout the patriarchs. Sarah can't get pregnant, so that's a big drama thing. How are we going to have an heir to fulfill God's promises? Rebecca, next generation, she has fertility issues. It's a very common problem in the biblical story. Uh, again, not sin. It's not meant to show, like, if you're struggling with fertility, God's judging you because you're sinful. It's not that at all, but it's just sort of this more um, general effect, like many other health issues. It's a general effect of the fallenness of our world in sin. And, but that's not how it should be. It should be that marriages lead to fruitful multiplication. That's God's norm. That's God's intention. And then finally, obscure gender distinctions. You have many examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament, of men who fail at family leadership. Adam, <laughs> you have a priest Eli. In 1 Samuel, you have David. Lots of family failure, lots of failure as a husband there. And then you have wives that, that fail to be suitable helpers you see especially some tyrannical women in the royal families like Jezebel and Athaliah um, in in Judah in the southern kingdom Um, so so you have examples of very poor examples on both sides of of God's gender roles for husbands and wives though the wisdom literature does kind of point to some it really some beautiful pictures of what God's ideal intention was supposed to be and Proverbs 31 is one regarding wives um, and for the sake of time, we're not going to read through it right now. But just to, to, to pull out some highlights, that it's, um, it's this beautiful picture of an excellent wife. That's kind of the label over the whole thing. And she's, she's busy and industrious, blessing her family. She's busy in the domestic sphere. But like as we see in, um, where is it, verse 16, she's dealing real estate, buying fields. So that, again, we don't be too rigid about all she does is sit in the kitchen and cook meals. That's, that's dignified good work. But she's, she's, uh, she's using agency. She's using her gifts, creativity to bless her family in all sorts of ways. Her children have good things to wear and good food to eat. And her husband is like this honored man in the community because of how she, she does good for him. Um, and so there's this ideal of industriousness, diligence, faithfulness to her family that's upheld. 
Song of Songs is also a picture of God's ideal in that in, in Song of Songs. Now we covered it in our survey recently, so I won't go very long on Song of Songs. But um, remember how in Genesis two twenty five, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. And then when they sinned, what do they do? They're like, "We're naked. Uh oh, we're ashamed." And they start like covering themselves with fig leaves. There's a sense in which sin brings about shame um, and kind of obscures the intimacy that God designed in marriage. And Song of Songs is sort of this celebration of what it's supposed to be. This is this free, um, intimate enjoyment of one another. God, del- uh, God, showing that husband and wife are to be delighting in one another. And as again, as we covered in the survey, this is ultimately pointing to what marriage is referring to, which is Christ in the church. And every marriage in the delight of husband and wife is a picture of Christ and His church and the mutual love for e- for each other. So that's marriage in the Old Testament. Before we go on to the, the new, do we have any? I know I kind of went fast for the end there. Any questions about those distortions or about wisdom literature or anything else I have or haven't covered in the Old Testament? Paul. Oh, they were naked. But it wasn't until the fall that they became That's when they realized they were naked. Yeah. Because before they didn't. The loss of innocence. Yeah. They realized that yeah. that's a result of the fall, correct? Yes, it is. It's right after they eat the fruit that they go, uh oh, we're naked. That's a problem. It's and then remember the tree they ate from was a knowledge of good and evil. I think there's a sense of they be, they kind of became aware of evil on a level that 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 they hadn't. So there's this new not good awareness that that enters the world. Yeah. And then Rhonda had a hand, I think, and then Greg. Well, you mentioned about um, polygamy. You know, that's not Sarah gave Abraham his her. Her maid, Jacob, yeah. was a mama's boy essentially, mm-hmm. right? And then he had two wives. So there's a, there's a lot of it, like you said. It wasn't really God's design. Yeah. There was a lot of examples. Of, yeah. Um, Don't read the patriarchs looking for family advice. <laughs> <laughs> for contrary, for what not to do. There's a lot. Yeah. Taba, we'll go with you, and then we're going to move into the New Testament and kind of go briefly. Yeah. doesn't delight in morally are we're still part of his decree for how the world would be because you're right it, it to bring about this redemption plan in Christ which is really the, the point of the whole story um, let's look at marriage in the New Testament and we will have to be brief for the sake of time um, we'll just look first at, Mar- at, at Jesus and then Peter and Paul Paul has the most to say um, but by the end of the Old Testament, we see this norm, this beautiful Genesis 1 and 2 norm. We see this fall and all these really wicked, nasty, like, like vines growing out from this problem of the fall into sin. And we're like, man, we need some restoration here at the end of the Old Testament. And the New deals with that. One thing about Jesus is uh, dealing with marriages. He doesn't say a lot about it. Now, some have said it's because Jesus doesn't think marriage is very important. Um, that, that he is sort of diminishing it in favor of the new noble calling of discipleship in his kingdom. 
there's a little, there's like a, a grain of truth in that, but it's not the whole story. What's true is he does talk more about his kingdom than about practical family issues. Um, he does subordinate marriage and family to the higher calling of belonging to him as disciples in his kingdom. So he says things like Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What he's doing there is he's saying, your loyalty to me has to far overshadow all your family loyalties in this world. That's true. And he does teach in Mark 12, 25, that marriage does not continue in the life to come. I preached on that recently where he says that they're not, they don't marry or given in marriage in the, in the new creation. But on the other hand, he does still affirm basically the whole Old Testament teaching on marriage. He affirms the goodness of marriage. What I would say is it's not that he, uh, he, d- he diminishes marriage or, or denigrates marriage, but more that he just sets it in context of a higher calling of membership in God's eternal kingdom. Um, so we, we talked already about Matthew 19, 3 to 6. They come in to him asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And his answer is just like pure Old Testament. Like he's not replacing the Old Testament. He says, well, haven't you read... That he who made them, created them from the beginning, made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. So he's just walking through the kind of creation norms for marriage. So, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. What he basically says is, you guys should, shouldn't have had to ask me this. You already had the Old Testament. You should have put this together. So Jesus is very supportive of the Old Testament's teaching on marriage. He doesn't supplant it or, uh, or, or even, re- I would say, even reduce the importance of marriage other than just putting it in the broader context of discipleship to him. And sometimes the eternal obligations and calling of the kingdom will create tensions in the family. For instance, like when a husband and wife are unequally yoked and one is a Christian and one's not, that's going to create some issues. And that's actually what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Um, he places a husband and wife's roles in their relationship together in the context of the broader fabric of Christians uh, calling in the world and our, our witness for Christ in the midst of a surrounding world that is, that is sometimes hostile. So in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, he, uh, he addresses wives, particularly with the regard to the scenario where her husband is not a believer. What kind of presence is she to have in that relationship? And, um, again, there's this interesting, you know, her highest loyalty is to Christ. That's consistent with what Jesus said, is you have to love me more than all that. She doesn't not believe in Jesus because her husband doesn't. She doesn't go, well, well honey, are we going to believe in Jesus or not? She says, I, I want Jesus. But she's still in this marriage. And Peter doesn't say, leave your marriage because your, your spouse is a non-believer. What he says is, you live, live in that marriage in a way that exemplifies Christ. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your husband, your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, so the wives are to cultivate inner beauty 
and prioritize the progress of the gospel over their own comforts and even their own rights. He's saying, be, just be, be, a, be a really excellent wife for your husband. Be patient with him. Be submissive to him. And maybe God will use that to save him. Which means a lot of times there's going to be things you're uncomfortable with or things that uh, are just unjust that you'll have to endure. Now, that does not mean that she should just endure abuse if that's happening without seeking relief for herself or accountability for her husband because that doesn't do him any good. It doesn't do him any good for, uh, for him to not re- uh, face accountability for that. That's a complex issue that we have dealt with as a church. And if, by the way, if that's an issue in your life, just want to say out on the outset, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 7 is not saying, no matter what, just take it. That is not what it means. So we can have a longer conversation about that if that's relevant to you. We would like to have a com- longer conversation with you. Um, but the Bible, God definitely does not insist that people who are being oppressed just continue under that oppression. But there is a sense in which a wife is, should expect that she's going to have to, especially with a non-believing husband, she's going to have to endure some, some uncomfortable things and, and, and give up some of her own rights and preferences for the sake of the gospel in his life. And then for husbands, uh, the husband's calling really reflects that, what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, that on the one hand, he's to respect her co-equal dignity. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, uh, recognizing she uh, is an heir with you of the grace of life. That's equality. Like She is an heir with you, with Christ, of the grace of life. She, she deserves honor as a co-equal with you. But then there's also this sense of recognizing complementarity when it says uh, as the weaker vessel showing her honor as the weaker vessel and I believe that isn't necessarily a description of her what she's her constitution as much as her place in the marriage she is in a vulnerable position it is inherently more vulnerable to be in a submission submission um, role or position in a relationship in any authority submission relationship the one who's who doesn't have authority, is, is in a weaker position. It's a more vulnerable position. So he's saying to the husband, it's like, be careful with her because she's in this vulnerable position. It's on you to treat her with, with respect like a vase. You don't, th- you don't play football with a, a vase. Right? Like, don't treat her be- because she is in a vulnerable position. Um, so there is, again, equality, and yet there's a distinction that really puts a burden on the husband, a good burden on the husband to treat her with nurture and care and to anticipate Paul's wording. Randy and then Rhonda and then Christina. Covered, then we're done. <laughs> you covered it very good, thank you. Because I've read that and I've known women who were nowhere weaker right. than me or any other man. But it's a call to the man to treat her as something special mm-hmm. and special care and commitment. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I promise. The other day I looked up the definitions of wife and husband, and wife is just female spouse. Uh-huh. It used to be female spouse of a man, now it's oh, yeah. female spouse of a person. <laughs> but husband also has a verb, which is to husband, oh, yeah. made into like animal husbandry, animal husbandry. Yeah. which is, or farming or anything, yeah. but it has, it has a connotation of um, stewardship yeah. and caring yes. and nurturing. So the, the role of the husband is not just to be the spouse, yeah. but to really be the, the, the carer, the yes. one who cares for his wife and the family yes. in a very comprehensive way. It's a really good point. As Rens is paying, we're going to see, especially in, in Ephesians 5, and we're going to have a very brief to cover that. But Christina? The question of 
does that at all speak to just biologically the fact that men tend to be stronger? They're the ones that are opening the door yeah. for the females in the sense of yeah. I should I should probably not overspeak and say we we want to be careful because God's God's roles are not arbitrary. They are rooted in nature in the way He made us. It's not like he could just roll the die like he had male and female. He's like, uh, which one's going to be which? Like, it, it's it's rooted in what we are constitutionally. There is a tie there, but I I think we need to be careful with weaker, and we're not saying like, oh, women are flighty. I mean, you can read a lot into that that I think we shouldn't. But you're right. It, there is a physical there's a physical aspect to that too, and there is a sense even complementarity in re- regard to a woman, a wife, is maybe maybe best set up to flourish under under the care, even emotionally in other ways, the care of her husband without denigrating. We don't want to denigrate femininity and say women are weak in every, yeah, we don't want to read too much into that weak, but you're right. There is more than just functional husband and wife there, but yeah, that could be a, yeah. Just a quick footnote in verse seven there too, when, when Peter says for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. The, the primary focus of what they're to understand is God's design and honoring that. He's not primarily saying, try to understand your wife. Right, He's right. Saying it, just a mm-hmm. Yeah, understand the situation with regard to that she's in with in God's design. Yeah. Um, real quick, uh, we'll cover the most important passage on marriage in the whole Bible. No, I'm just kidding. I think, I think Genesis 2 was. But very important in the New Testament is Ephesians 5. And Paul is dealing with um, husband and wife's roles. And it's important to read Ephesians 5 in the context of all of Ephesians where the, the, the plan that God's doing in, in all things is to unite all things under Christ. And you see that in Ephesians 1.10. And he raised Christ up after he died on the cross and he seated him as head over all things, over his enemies and over his church in Ephesians 1.22. So headship is already a concept that's come up with regard to Christ and his, his, his life-giving authority, of course, also his authority over his enemies. But then when we get to uh, 521 to 33, uh, Paul draws on this concept of headship again. So he says, um, in 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he goes on with that, that reasoning about loving your own self, your own body. That's how you should treat your wife. And again, we saw the mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, that the two shall become one flesh. Um, a lot here that we don't have time to cover at, at length, but just to say it's, it's very clear he's calling wives to submit to husbands. And hu- lest we, th- we think that, that headship means domination and headship means the husband gets to have his way. That's again, that's a Genesis 3 version of headship. But, but in Christ, and this is another thing in Ephesians, God is renewing humanity in Christ. This new people of God is like renewing what we were supposed to be all along. Um, you see that in chapter 4 in a couple of places. So it's kind of dusting off what was tarnished about what God meant for mankind to be. And part of what that means is there is, there are ordered relationships, but it's, it's a headship that serves. It's a headship that nurtures and cherishes. It's a very life-giving headship. It's not exploitation. It's not authority that takes from. 
It's authority that gives to. That's very fundamental to what Christ-like authority does. So we always want to be very quick that when, we, when we're teaching these roles, we're not saying, husband, husband gets his way, whatever he wants. That's not Christian headship and submission. Um, and and that's, that's a really, I mean, that's a, a passage worthy of, of a lot of meditation. I wish we could talk more, but we need to, we need to go. So um, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, my email address is on the handout, and uh, I'm glad to interact over, I know we've covered a lot here, and there's probably a lot of practical questions that could come up. There's some that I wanted to ask that I don't have time to, but um, feel free to email me. We can interact as the course goes on over more of these things, or come talk to me in person, that's fine too. But let me close in prayer, and uh, we'll get going. God, we praise you for Christ, who is our head, who is our Savior, who nourishes and cherishes us at the cost of his own life he he gave for our redemption and our eternal joy and we thank you for the beauty of what you've designed maleness and femaleness and husband and wives to be in marriage and uh it's profound it it, it just um, requires meditation and and careful thought we pray you grant us all wisdom as we think biblically and we think carefully and as we discern wisely as we look around at the world what what it does and does not look like even among christian spaces uh, there's a lot of distortion. We pray that you'd grant us both in our understanding and our practice to exemplify this Holy Spirit-filled new creation that you've made us in Christ. And we pray that, that marriage would be uh, shown in its beauty and it would point to Christ in the gospel in, in our church and in our homes. We pray all this in Jesus' name.